come now. You should say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is one of those places in James where we get presented with a situation. There, there, are, there is a presenting issue, a presenting problem, and then there is a, a deeper diagnosis that we can look for if we look under the surface and read it carefully. And then if we read it yet more carefully, we can consider uh, the kind of solution, the kind of prescription even, that could be offered. So let's do it in that order. Let's look first at the presenting issue that James is identifying here and then look at the deeper diagnosis afterwards. The presenting issue is the way that we speak presumptuously. And sometimes you can tell when somebody has read this chunk of the Bible and felt the rebuke because their conversation style can be a little different. Maybe you've come across people who insert the words God willing at the end of any sentence which is a sort of statement of intent. Uh, you know, we will be with you at Easter, God willing, uh, or same time next week, God willing, um, or Brighton may stay in the top 10 of the, the Premier League, God willing, or whatever. There might be a, a, a kind of tendency to throw that phrase in at the end as if we're just trying to stay the good side of James. <laughs> we're trying to keep James happy because he clearly has a problem with people uh, talking without throwing God into their sentences. Now, I'm talking as though... Uh, I'm mocking that kind of behaviour. I'm actually not. I think it's, it's perfectly understandable. It's not a bad way of talking. I do it myself quite often, deliberately. I think it's a good habit to develop. And if that's the only outcome from today's message, that you try to foster the habit of throwing the words God willing into a few more of your sentences, I wouldn't be disappointed too much. That's, that's, that's okay. That's, that's, that's not a bad outcome. But I'm going to suggest that we can go further than that. I think actually James wants to go further than that because we know James by now. We, we've read chapter 3 where he talks about the tongue, but he always relates the tongue to the heart, which sounds like I'm talking from a butcher shop. But what, what I mean should be obvious, that the way we speak is all linked with what's going on inwardly. It's, it's the way we think and feel. It's, it's, it's the way we're, we're kind of oriented and wired as a human being. That's what comes out of our speech. And if all we do is adopt one or two habits to sort of slightly more spiritualise our language from time to time, it could be that we're altogether bypassing the heart, that the heart is not really being touched, but certain behaviours, especially when we're around Christians, are being touched. And then you end up with what James castigates, actually, uh, earlier on in his letter when he says, does a spring, this is in chapter 3, verse 11, does a spring pour forth water from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Uh, and he says, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He's talking in the context of the way we speak there. That's the big passage about the tongue. And he's saying, listen, it's not really about just sort of 
modified behavior when you're amongst Christians. I'm talking about consistency, integrity. I'm talking about purity of heart. Don't forget James has got a real issue with double-mindedness, double living. It's right at the start of the letter where we, he talks about the one who is double-minded. And here and there, he, he picks up that theme again. He, he, he's not trying to create a community of religious people who know how to look spiritual, who know how to behave Christian when they need to. When, it, when it's necessary to stay in the Christian tribe, we just modify our speech, a few less rude words and a few more God-willings. James is disgusted with that. He's not interested in that at all. So whenever he's talking of the mouth, he's talking about the heart. And so we must follow him and go deeper in this. James isn't even coming to us just as a life coach. He's always going deeper. I guess James would be likely to say something like, yeah, okay, I could be your life coach as long as I can be your death coach as well. As long as I can draw you into the more serious, profound issues of gravity as long as I can help you to settle on the most important eternal questions, those are the things that preoccupy James really. The presenting issues just help us to get there. The issues of how we speak uh, in, in certain sentences and whether we say the right thing, that's, that's, that's his way of getting to something deeper that goes on underneath. And the way that we speak does belie a certain super confidence, a certain overconfidence, a misplaced confidence that we tend to have, that we default to as what the Bible would describe as fallen human beings, people who've fallen from our original purpose and design. We are not as we were. We are not as we were intended. We've become something less. And our, our tendencies, our instinctive thought patterns and behaviours and motivations and desires and appetites and tastes and sensitivities have all been tainted, all been affected, all been somehow uh, tarnished and broken by the fall that we took at the very beginning of the human story in, in our first ancestors. Because of that, we've inherited a tendency, a way of thinking, and yes, indeed, of speaking that belies a, a completely ill-judged, overwhelming confidence. Now, you might think of yourself as completely lacking in confidence. You might say, well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm deeply underconfident. And I, I get that. I understand that. I, I sympathize. I'm not saying that we're all alpha males or we're, we're all, we all have this kind of streak of bravado that you can certainly pick up, you know, notice in some people more than others. But the Bible is always more subtle than we are. We're quite good at noticing which people in the room seem to come across confident, but the Bible goes deeper and actually identifies it even amongst the quietest, even amongst the, the introverts, <laughs> the people that you might think, well, no, they, they, they need more confidence. They're shy, they're quiet. No, no, the Bible knows us better than we do. The Bible understands, and James uh, here, as an example, he, he judges the human heart so, so much more subtly. We, we, tend to, we tend to judge people in very superficial, kind of one-dimensional terms. We think of obvious examples of human evil. And, and you know, this last sort of seven, eight days has provided the, the sort of global example in, in Putin. 
And, and they're, they're obvious, they're, you've got a, 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 an overweening tyrant, you've got a, a violent aggressor. There you go, that's evil for you. Now we've summarized evil, we can go on and do something else. You know, we understand evil because we've seen a, we've seen a, a military dictator, it would seem, just trying to seize another state. That's, that's evil. The Bible always says, oh, wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's go far deeper still. Let's, let's talk about each of us. Let's not allow the microscope to only cover one sort of segment of the human population. And what we tend to do is we, we strangely assume that our moral judgment, our moral compass, our filters, our way of judging and understanding the moral universe are reliable. That our... We're perfectly sensitive to what's right and wrong. We, we, we know. We can judge rightly. We, we tend to assume that for, on no basis. Why should we assume that? Why would we be the ones that know what's right and wrong? It shouldn't surprise us that we get surprised when we come into this book and see things that, that seem perhaps a little over the top at first. When, when, when James talks about the way people say seemingly kind of innocent things about, you know, where we will go and uh, what we will do and the success we will have. That's, that sounds like an ordinary conversation, doesn't it? That sounds like, you know, what you talk about at parties or at the pub or, you know, in the canteen or, or on Facebook. It's just like, you know, what, this is what we talk about, James. James, is just, it's a normal conversation. And James uses words like evil, arrogant, sin. James, what? Over the top, James. James, this is just, you're just over the top. Doesn't James seem over the top sometimes, especially here? If it doesn't seem over the top to you, I wonder if you're being honest. Let's be honest. We, we, don't, we don't naturally get what James is saying here because as fallen sons of Adam, we are desensitized. Our, our nerves are calloused. I remember once just as an illustration, being in California about 10, 10, 15 years ago, I was, I made the mistake of crossing the road <laughs> as a pedestrian from one side to the other uh, of a street that wasn't particularly busy in Santa Monica in, in Los Angeles. And I, I should have known better. There was a policeman in a police car within split seconds uh, I mean, the light, thankfully, he spared the siren, but he did flash his lights, you know, the flashing lights on top of the city. Because of what I'd done, I crossed the road. And a, a, a policeman leapt from his car, which he hadn't even parked properly. He was in such a state, he just, just left it jaggedly in the middle of the road, leapt from his car to approach me and rebuke me. And he said to me, what do you think you're doing? And I, I said in my very English accent, I, 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 did I do something wrong? And he realised I was English, he said... Uh, do you do that in your country? And uh, I, he, you know, I won't try and do a Californian accent. And he, he, my response was you know, very kind of uh, laconic, kind of blithely wise and witty British person. Oh, what, do you mean cross the road? Or something like that. And I, I shouldn't have been so full. I mean, the, the guy was thankfully more patient with me than he might have been. Californian policemen have got a reputation for being quite quick. And uh, I... I I managed to avoid a night in the cells, but I walked away thinking, strange man. But of course, from his point of view, I'm the strange man because it's, it's California. <laughs> it's, not, it's not Hove, where you can cross the road without asking permission from, or waiting for the lights or whatever. I don't know what the rules are there, but anyway, I was the stranger. 
And yet I thought he was, I had my arrogant attitude, if you like, of just, well, you're just weird people. And we, we quite easily do this. We, we, we imagine that we are the, the safe moral judge on every issue without realising there may be things that we don't even know about culture. We, a more serious example would be a historic example, just a quick one, the, the, uh, the time in the 1850s when the British occupiers in India uh, issued the Indian regiments in their armies uh, with rifles where they were meant to bite the ends of the cartridges off before they charged the guns or got the guns away, uh, charged, I don't know what the word is, if you're a military person you know. And, uh, and, and, but the rumour went around that there was pig and cow fat in the cartridges that, that, that was the grease that was used to keep the cartridges together. And, and of course it was kind of assumed that these soldiers would, these Indian soldiers would be happy to, to do that. But of course for the Hindus it was like it's cow fat, <laughs> that's not, that's not accepted, we can't do that. And for the Muslims it was pig fat. For both groups of people it was a massive error. It was a hugely offensive, profoundly offensive thing that the British army imposed on this whole regiment of, of sepoy soldiers. But of course it was like, oh, that's just their problem. They just, they, what a silly thing to care about. Well, of course it seems silly if you've not known it. And, and just as there are cultural failures to understand what's a moral sensitivity in another person's universe, there might be between us and heaven. The things that we think are pretty innocent, like a conversation about what we're doing this summer and whether we expect it to go where, how long we're going to stay there and whether we're going to come back and whether we're going to get something done with our business seems pretty safe and yet heaven has issue with it. There's a sensitivity, there's a spiritual issue that we may have missed in it and so we have to come with humility and that's why we need to move from just the presenting issue onto the deeper diagnosis here. What is it that's going on? What is it that causes James and scripture here to use such, it seems to me, kind of extreme language, language of arrogance, sin, evil. Really? Well, the, the, the best diagnosis is to surely look carefully. What is it that, that he's describing again? Verse 13 again, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Today we'll, or tomorrow, we will do this. And this is what we'll do when we do that. And, and, this, and it will work. It will work when we do this. Now, apart from the fact that that's, that's usually wrong, <laughs> we can't predict the future. We know that from just foreign policy from the last few days, right? No one was able to predict quite what has happened in, in, Crimea, in Ukraine this last couple of weeks. No one has quite predicted it. No one quite did. But put even that aside, what does it speak of? Well, I think what James is seeing here is the behaviour of humans to assume a place of divine sovereignty, a place of godlike ability to know exactly how much life we've got left, to to be successful, to know that we can choose and be successful in all of the things that we do. It's up to us. I will live this long and these are the things I will do because I say so. I am the master of my fate. And surely that's not just a mistake, 
but an affront to the person who is God. The person who does occupy that sovereign place is being pushed off his throne, is being pushed aside, is being, is being insulted by our self-confidence, our, our foolish, mistaken self-confidence, our tendency to assume that position. It's saying, I, I am basically God. When we live our life independent of whether God even matters, let alone exists, it's, it's like we're kind of taking his position. And James, again, I think would be pointing at something even deeper because he's saying this, this is what we are, this is who we've behaved like from the beginning. We, we've, we've, given, we've given that version of ourselves. We've, we've assumed that we're God. We've got power, we've got control over all things. You can only really think and try to live that way if you're prepared to live in a, a, a sort of fabulous level of denial, right? You can only try to live that way if you're prepared to lie to yourself constantly. But that's, I think, what we do. That's, that's precisely what we do. We persistent, as, as, as human beings generally, one of the things that's most predictable about human behaviour is that we will belittle the sheer reality of our createdness, of our, our shortness of life and of approaching death. We will, we will do all we can to prevent reflecting on that, to prevent focus on that. We'll deny it, even despise it when it's brought up as a subject. Some of you, even as I'm saying it now, for all kinds of reasons that you might make up, you might even pretend it's a Christian reason. Oh, don't talk about death, it's not very nice of you. You might, you might have all kinds of supposedly spiritual reasons or whatever, pragmatic reasons, to, to block your ears to the reality of the shortness of life. But James won't have it because he knows, he sees through that human behaviour of ours. He sees through that instinct we have to just talk about anything else and, and, and just resist any contemplation of the reality, of the shortness of life. And the fact that, as, as he says, look at what he has to say to us in verse 14, where he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? If you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, who do you think you are? Who do you think... And yet we treat death like it's a waiter at our table. Are you you'd like me to take your order now? I, I, I'm ready. But death never, in the Bible, death never shows, it always talks in language of violence. He, he was taken, his soul was taken from him. You read the, the scriptures, the descriptions of it. It's an enemy, the Bible says. This isn't a, a tamed creature that we can welcome into our home and, and, and understand and, and get along with and negotiate with. No, no, no. This is a thief. A murderer, a robber, a destroyer, an enemy. And the Bible wants us to face the reality of that, face our createdness and face our mortality. James wants us to be prepared to focus on it and understand it and not fix our hearts on denial. We mustn't do that. It isn't healthy. 
It's not the way to live. Even the, the, the earliest place of, of sin, the fall, the very beginning of our human story, is characterized by that, that, that lie being given to us by the serpent in the garden. Maybe you know the story, Genesis chapter 3. You will not surely die. That was the basis on which the, the contract with sin was arranged. That was, the, that was the agreement, the alliance we signed up to with evil. And, and we won't die, okay? Is that agreed? We won't die. We'll disobey God and we won't die. Excellent. It was a lie from the beginning and it's a lie now. Death is the wages of sin. The Bible is plain. The Bible doesn't lie. It's what's happened to us because of our disobedience to God. And it's there before us. And James puts it towards us. And you might think he's just kind of being offensive and rubbing our face in it. No, he's putting smelling salts to us. He's trying to awaken us from our foolish distraction, from our superficial grasp of reality. He's saying, what is your life? You are mist that appears for a little time. And we need to allow him to do that to us, to face it as a reality, to understand that that's the way death comes to us. It actually comes in stages, doesn't it, if you think about it. If the most profound and important thing in our lives is relationships, then death comes for one at a time, comes, it seems, to claim these precious things, these prizes of our lives, takes one after another, these key relationships, we seem to be robbed of them till, in some cases, we feel quite bereft and then finally comes to take us by the hand. Each one of us will have to follow on, it would seem. And James, James doesn't, just doesn't hide from it. He does, oh, it's not a nice subject. It, people don't like me talking about it. No, no, he's eager, eager all the more to bring it up because he wants to put us in touch with reality. He wants to help us. And sometimes, I suppose, even world events can help us to have a, a, a healthy, appropriate contact point with sheer reality. What's happened in this last week with the outbreak of a European war, which perhaps some of us thought we'd never see in our lifetimes, and we haven't really seen, not of its scale, I guess, maybe except for the Balkans in the 90s, since, since 1945. Something has happened that has suddenly reminded us of the, the, the fragility of life, the fragility of, of circumstances and our inability to control in the way we might have imagined that we can. And, and it seems we'll do anything we can to try and retain the illusion of control because as you get older, like me, this does become more of a reality. Childhood is characterised by kind of blithe innocence and even indifference to death. Usually, it's terrible when it isn't the case. Usually, children are given that wonderful privilege. As you get older, it's, it's going to hit home more and more. And so we have to find ways to adjust our, our kind of mental diet. And we, we just do anything we can. We, we, we've done well with medicine. We do well with, with technology. We do well with entertainment. So we've got, we've got Netflix on demand and other providers of entertainment are available. We, we've got all kinds of instant distraction at the touch of a thumb, literally, so that I can be <gasps> given an escape hatch from reality. I can 
just have this moment, this fix, where I don't have to, once again, and if I can adjust my life successfully, I don't have to ever face that until the last moments when it seems too late to take it very seriously. James, James is loving us enough to not let us be so foolish. So he's presenting us with sheer reality, saying you are creatures, you are created, you are not eternal in the way you think, you're mortal, and so there is, a, there is a desperate need for us to face reality and understand who is truly in sovereign control of all circumstances. We cannot know what will happen this next hour, let alone what will happen this next year or decade or century. We cannot know that we will even breathe the next breath. The fact that we've been given as many as we have is sheer gift. We never earn the oxygen we breathe. We are not owed it. He is not obliged to us for a split second. Each moment of our existence is grace. You've got to see it like that. And this is why we must understand when James says, don't say words like that, say these words. He's not, he's not just giving us little gentle tips on how to be a, a more religious person. He's trying to connect with the drive underneath. He's trying to under, help us understand our own motives and tendencies. But thankfully, <laughs> we don't have to live only in the bleakness of it. James drives us to the seriousness of life and death so that we see our need, we see our finitude. We call out to God for answers. And I think, what, what are the answers? Let me do this lastly as a third thing. We've looked at the, the presenting issue. We've looked at the deeper diagnosis. We've just got time for a surprising prescription, I would say. It's interesting to me, he talks about boasting, evil boasting. But bear in mind that back in chapter 1, James commanded boasting. He told us to boast. He says in chapter 1, verses 9, 10, 11, he says that, that the poor man boasts... In his exaltation, let the rich one boast in his humiliation. In a very similar passage, actually, focusing again on the, 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 the kind of apparently vapor-like nature of life, the, the, the ephemeral nature of life. He's saying it's just, it's just in the same way in chapter 1. It's, it's just gone like a plant, like a flower of the field. It's gone. And he says, therefore... Let the rich man boast in his humiliation. Now, how can you boast in your humiliation? What does he mean by boasting? He's saying boasting here is wrong. In chapter 1, he's saying boasting is the solution. Let's think about what boasting is. Boasting, friends, essentially is a war cry. That's what it is. Everybody boasts. It's not a question of whether you boast. You will boast. You will. Because you will put your confidence in something. You will make a claim. People do it. Joe Biden did it this last week. Putin has no idea what he started. He has no idea the strength of the West. And Putin will do his own boasts. There will be boasts going on across political lines these weeks and months. As people put confidence and lay claim to supremacy in the context of military uh, connection. It's where we, where we place our confidence is what we boast in. What are you placing your confidence in? It will come out in the way you speak. I, I, I'll do this next week, I'll do that, I'll make this much money. I know I can, I will. <laughs> we might not say it in such a crass way, we might not want to come across like Donald Trump, but we, in our hearts, whether we say it or not, will have confidence, either in ourself or in some party that controls things, some, some tribe to which we belong, maybe some national identity. 
maybe some ideological team, we, we will make our boast in a football team, in, in, in a stand, in our stadium. This is our boast. <laughs> this is our war cry. This is our chant. This is what we lift our hands and sing about every Saturday afternoon or every Sunday morning. Who do you boast in? That's the question. It isn't ultimately whether you boast. You will boast. James says boast in your humiliation. Strange. How can you boast in that? What a bizarre thing to boast in, to boast in your weakness, your nothingness, your flimsiness, your mortality, the fact that you're going to die. How can I boast in that? I can boast in that if I remember another place or several other places, but I'll just use one example where Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. Let no one deceive himself. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. See, to boast in the Lord, it is impossible to boast in yourself at the same time. If you are to boast in yourself, you have to boast in your weakness. That's the only way you can boast in the Lord at the same time. You cannot truly boast in the Lord and yet live a life of boasting in your security, your capacity, your competence, your, your abilities, your, your skills, your financial acumen your plans, your strategies, if you lay your confidence in such things, you are, by definition, taking it away from God. You're saying, my confidence is not in you. I don't boast in you. I'm more confident in me. But when we say, God, I, I put my confidence in you, it's because, it has to be because we've seen reason to. It can't be just an act of the will. It can't just be, well, okay, from now on, I will try very hard to put my confidence in God. No, no, no. The Christian isn't someone that's trying to put their confidence in God. The Christian is someone who's seen enough of God, seen enough through his son, Jesus, to actually find that the things that they used to boast in have distinctly lost their shine. <laughs> They're seriously unimpressive. It's not like they're trying to stop boasting in themselves. They actually find it embarrassing because they're overwhelmed with the reality that Jesus, God's son, is the only one who is enough for them. He is all they need and he is, he is not just their, their, their right standing before God, but he's their wisdom, he's their holiness, he's their freedom, he's their everything, he's their security, he's their sufficiency, he's their provider, he's the one who knows their needs and cares for them and has compassion for them, he's the one about whom they can say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
Or you can say, uh, like Isaiah, uh, back in uh, chapter 44 and, and verse 4 of Isaiah, sorry, chapter 64 and verse 4, from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who, what does he do? Acts for those who wait for him. This is the place of our confidence. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. He acts for those who wait for him. To, to follow Jesus and trust him is to learn to be confident, truly confident, happily, gladly, increasingly peacefully, joyfully confident in his ability to act on your behalf. In his ability, his willingness, his determination, his promise to know and care about all of the details of your life. To know the needs before you've mentioned them to him. Before you've even thought of them. Before they troubled you. Before they caused the tiniest shred of anxiety in your consciousness this week. Before anything interrupted your flow of peace this week. It was on God's desk months before. Centuries, millennia, aeons before. He knew everything because he knows the end from the beginning. He is in utter and complete control of every aspect of your life. He cannot not be. It's who he is. And because of who he is, we have a lasting basis for joy and peace and true confidence. We have a boast. We can shout it. We can, we can scream it from the terraces. We can be persuaded inwardly and, and, and look with scorn and embarrassment on any time in our life when we laid our confidence in anything else. How ridiculous to imagine that I can control the future, let alone issues of government and, and foreign policy. How ridiculous for anyone to assume that we can engineer the issues of life. No, no, we need to humble ourselves before God. Remember our creatureliness. Bring ourselves to a place of genuine humility. God, teach me. Help me to understand that you hold my life in your hands. A dear man in the Shoreham site, Dick Carter, died a few weeks ago. And uh, Matt Davis, one of my best friends, his site leader, he, he told us just a few days later, he said... Every time he ever asked Vic, leading up to his death, every time he ever asked Vic, how are you feeling? How are you doing? How are you doing? Every time Vic's answer was, I'm in his hands. I'm in his hands. This man is now in, was in his 90s, leaves a widow in her 90s. Hope I've got that right. <laughs> in his hands. Now, he was obeying James. He was getting it right. He wasn't just being religious. It's how he lived. It's how he lived. It's where he placed his confidence. People in Ukraine are having to do that right now. Families, I've watched it. I've seen a video just recently of a family sitting around singing in Ukrainian. I didn't know the words until I looked them up. Beautiful video, this family and a father leading his family in song with the words, he shall hold me fast. He shall hold me fast for my saviour loves me so. He shall hold me fast injecting peace and hope and joy into his troubled family. Friends, that's what a Christian is. It's someone who knows not what the future holds, but who holds the future. That's all we need to know, isn't it? If we know that, we can make plans. Oh, we should make plans. We should strategize. We should make all kinds of plans. You plan. You get ambitious. You set your whole life on a journey. I encourage you to do it humbly. 
Do it as a worshipper, do it as a creature, and don't imagine that you're the creator. Let's pray. Father, teach us, please, to live this way as worshippers, trusters, remembering our place, staying humble before you. In Jesus' name, amen.